is a good morning today. So we have just gotten out of two weeks looking at wellness plans for this year. Wasn't that helpful? I know I needed that. It's helpful to look into the future to make sure that we are uh, moving in the right direction. If we don't know where we're going, we're going to end up getting lost. Uh, today, we're not going to jump back into Acts. We are going to be in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And as you flip there, I want to start by asking you a question. What type of person do you consider important? What type of person do you consider important? What characterizes a, por- a person that you would move your schedule around for? Maybe at work, it's your boss, your manager, the person directly over you. Why? Well, they have power and authority over you, so they say jump and you say how high. They say we need to have a meeting and you say, okay, when? You need to stay late, okay, let's go. They have authority over you, they have power over you. Or maybe it's somebody in the media who if they asked you for some time in your schedule, you would make time for them. I don't know, maybe it's Bono. Bono wants to meet with you and you say, sure, Bono, I'd love to do that and bring me a pair of shades. They're high profile, visible, wealthy, successful, talented, full of knowledge. I don't know what it is for you that you consider important, but somebody like that would have something to offer you and therefore you would make time in your schedule for them. And then there's friends and family, right? Regardless of what they have to offer you, You love them, and therefore you make time for them. But when it comes to the first two categories, often it's whether somebody has authority over you or has something to offer you. And we make time in our schedule for them because we consider them to be important. Well, how about Jesus? Who are the people that Jesus prioritized? Who he considered important and made time for in his busy schedule? Well, he prioritized those that most considered the least. Those who couldn't possibly pay him back for what he gave them. Those who recognized their lack and their need for him, for his mercy, for his grace, for his kindness. Matthew 5.3 doesn't say, Blessed are those who have a lot of religious knowledge and works, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt, and they couldn't possibly pay off their debt to God. I think it's exactly because of this that Jesus loved and prioritized children. Have you ever asked your toddler to pay the bills for you? I know I haven't. (laughs) It wouldn't go very well. Um, He asked Ezra what a bill is, and he would talk about his Uncle Billy. He loves him a lot. Um, But children, it's a ministry of pouring into, right? It's a ministry of sowing seed because often and almost always your children can't give back to you until they become older, and then you hope that they do and recognize how much you've done for them, right? But Jesus loved and prioritized 
children. So this is exactly what we're going to be talking about today in our passage, which is Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. The title of our message today is Jesus Loves the Little Children. Sorry if that song is stuck in your head the rest of the day. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for children. We thank you that each of us is a child of yours because you created us. Lord, let us better understand your heart for children so that we might love our kids, our students, like you love them. So that they might grow into mature followers of you by following our example. And may we humble ourselves and become like children that we might enter into your kingdom and live under your rule and reign. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, today we get the chance to learn from quite a few people in this short passage. We're going to, of course, learn from Jesus. We get to see the heart of God in the life of Jesus. We get to learn from the disciples, and I'll admit, it's mostly what not to do from them, which is good. We need that. We learn from others' mistakes so that we don't have to always learn from our own. Then we get to learn from the they who brought the children to Jesus, which could have been parents or caretakers or grandparents or whomever, but the children are brought by them. And finally, we get to learn from the children. Isn't that amazing? We can learn so much from children. So, let's get into our passage. The first point in question that I'm going to ask is, do you comprehend God's immeasurable love for children? Do you comprehend God's immeasurable love for children? Can you really wrap your mind around how much he loves children? Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, student leaders, your children that are under your care, do you understand how deeply God loves them? I know how deeply I love Ezra. Like, it's a lot. That guy is so special to me. Um... God has that same sort of affection, and even more, not only for him, but for all children. It's amazing. And we get to see God's heart for children in this passage. So the first thing I want us to do is to notice Christ's love for children. Notice Christ's love for children. Well, why does God love children? Why are they so precious to him besides them being cute and cuddly? Ezra's very cute and cuddly. Well, there's a list as long as my arm that we could go through, but I want to touch on a few of them. And I've, I've been taking a poll throughout the week to see what different moms and 
kids ministry workers and, and whatnot at the church have to say about this. Uh, so these are the things that I think are some of the most important ones. They're made in the image of God, first and foremost. Every child is made in God's image. So he's going to love them because they reflect him. Because of their innocence, they're not yet corrupted by this world. They have a sinful nature. They do things that are sinful, but they're, they're still innocent. Their slate is far wider than ours is when we're 25 or 30 or 70, and we've been exposed to the things of this world. This is why God is a protector of children, a protector of their innocence, and why he takes it very seriously when we, others, and, and the media teach and corrupt children and cause them to stumble. God loves children because of their trust. They're open to the truth. Their hearts are open. They're not prideful, but they're humble. They don't recognize yet how much they don't know, and they don't know that much, so they can't think they know everything like we do. It's a good thing. They're impressionable. For an illustration, I thought, what better illustration to use than Plato? I did. So... What happens when you take Plato right out of the container? It's impressionable. It can be molded. It can be shaped. It can be formed. This is how children are. They're fresh out of the box, and they're able to be molded. But what happens when you leave Plato out? It gets hard as a rock. Now, it's a big chunk of Plato, so I could peel off the hard layers, and there's still much that can be molded inside of it. But just as when Plato is exposed to the air, over time it becomes harder and harder, so too our hearts as we're exposed to sin and to this world become harder and we're less able to be formed without an incredible work of God. So, God capitalizes on and calls us to see as important this opportunity we have with children whose hearts are able to be formed. They're still soft. They're still impressionable. I think there's a reason God doesn't say, you must become like a teenager to enter into the kingdom of God. Would you describe your teenager as impressionable, open, trusting every word you say without question? No, <laughs> that's right. And something else I think is, is so cool about kids as well is their amazement with things. I mean, Ezra is amazed that God is bigger than Goliath. It's like, he's more than nine feet tall? Are you serious? You know, Jesus, Jesus raised from the dead? Ezra gets confused sometimes, he, you know, in, the, in David and Goliath's story, Goliath falls down, and we've had to tell him, you know, Goliath can't get back up, like, he's, he's finito. So, like, we'll be playing, and I'll fall down, and he'll get really upset, you know? But it's like, Jesus fell down, and he raised back up. That's amazing! But for us, familiarity can drown out amazement. We see it so many times, we hear it so many times, that we become callous to it. Not so with children. So, 
These are some of the reasons I think God's heart is so in love with children, among many more. So we need to avoid the disciples' mistakes. Now in this passage, we're seeing the disciples' behavior. These are the mistakes that we're seeing, but ultimately, these mistakes are rooted in something in the heart. There is a disconnect, a lack of congruity between Jesus' heart, God's heart, and the heart of the disciples, which is producing this fruit. I mean, it's to the point that what do they say? They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. When do you rebuke somebody? When they're doing something wrong. So the disciples say, stop it. This is not important right now. The master is busy. He's got people to teach. He's got people to heal. There are more important people he needs to prioritize than your children. Really? This doesn't sit well with Jesus. But it made me think, you know, okay, Jesus is in the house, he's teaching, he's healing, and these children are waiting there. At what stage of waiting in line are the children? Do you know what I mean? You ever been to Disney with your kids? Okay, so we've got a couple pictures here, which I'm going to call the stages of Ezra waiting in line at Disney. Let's pull that picture up. In the first phase, we have the don't touch me. I want to get on the ride. I'm upset I'm not on it, so don't touch me. The second phase is I really am over this. I'm laying on the floor because I'm so upset. Really don't touch me. Don't talk to me. And the last one is we made it. We're here. Look at that. So happy. Turn around. So we'll go back to uh, the last slide. Um, Maybe the disciples are getting impatient. Jesus is trying to teach, and there's toddlers throwing tantrums, and their parents are like, guys, just quiet down. We're almost there. He's right there. And when we're at Disney, Ezra couldn't wait to meet Mickey, and we had to stand in line for like eight minutes, and he wouldn't have it. He couldn't wait those eight minutes to see him. So maybe this is happening. We don't know how old the children are, but as a dad, I'm like, Okay, maybe they're, maybe they're impatient. You know, it's been a long day. They've had a long week of ministry. It's the end of the week. They want to relax, and these kids are sitting there, and they're like, we don't have time for this. So from the disciples, we see a portrait of one, a theology of the heart. So we're going to pull up a picture of a tree that I put together. So the disciples' problem is fruit. It's a fruit issue, and people look at this tree a couple different ways, but this is the way I like to explain it. Our beliefs, our convictions, the things that we've learned throughout our lifetime produce beliefs that are rooted in our heart. And we encounter different situations that those beliefs are filtered through and produce fruit. So, what are the disciples' beliefs? Children are way less important than adults, maybe. Uh, we don't have time for this. The master's tired. He needs to rest rather than spend time with kids. Then the situation is there's a bunch of kids who are waiting. Their parents and their, their guardians are bringing them to Jesus, and their response is anger, rebuke. So 
if you want to change your response to certain situations, you have to change what is rooted in your heart. So for us, whether it's this or something else, we need to look at what are the roots that are in our heart if we ever want to deal with the fruit of sin in our life. We'll take anger. Maybe you're a person, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or a student worker, who you can get angry with children maybe when they're misbehaving or they're not listening to you. So the situation that creates your anger is you've told this child to do something and they refuse to listen to you. Maybe you've told them two or three times. Your response is anger. Okay, well, what is the belief that is rooted in your heart that when the situation happens produces this? It's going to take some digging. The heart of man is deep waters, but the wise man is able to draw it out. This is why we need counsel. This is why we need help. But if we want to deal with these issues in our life, we can't just cut off the fruit. It's going to keep growing back. We have to uproot what is in our heart in order to see progress in victory over sin. So my recommendation to you is to start a journal. Start a journal. Okay, got angry again today. What was the situation? What's the trunk that is bringing about this fruit? Well, you know, Ezra kicked the dog again. Okay, what's the belief? Animals are awesome, don't kick dogs, you know? But though that's true, how do I have the heart of God more in this situation that says, I'm going to show grace, I'm going to show humility, I'm going to show love, I'm going to show patience, I'm going to show kindness in response to him stepping on that belief I have about dogs and treating him with love instead of anger. The last thing that we're going to see in this portion is to put on the heart of Christ. Put on the heart of Christ. So Colossians 3 talks about how we have to put off the old self, our old ways, and put on Christ. So what would this look like? I have anger that used to characterize my life, and I need to instead put on Christ, which is going to look a lot different than that, right? So now, I've got Christ, who is living through me, because Jesus is in me through the Holy Spirit, but rather than responding in anger, I'm responding with his love because I have his heart. What do we need to put off? What in your life needs to be put off, particularly in responding to children? And what do you need to put on? What are you missing in your life as you try to imitate Christ? I'm going to put this one back on so I don't look like a traffic cone. So, children are worthy of our time. They're worthy of our love. They're worthy of us prioritizing them. So... Let's put on the heart of Christ for them. Our second main point is bring the children to Jesus. Bring the children to Jesus. Now, I'm intentionally wording these things to not just talk to parents, right? You're an aunt or an uncle, you're a grandparent, you're a student worker, maybe you're somebody in the congregation where you say, I want to minister to children. How can I bring children to Christ? This is for everybody. Or maybe you are a children, and you need to remind yourself how important you are. Not in a prideful way, but say, you know what? 
my life is worthy of being poured into because I want to be like Jesus. So this is for everybody. This isn't just for parents, but parents should definitely listen up, right? So how do we bring the children, our children, to Jesus? We need to live a life worthy of imitation. More than anything, we need to live a life worthy of imitation. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Corinthians in every church that Paul planted and poured into had a living portrait of Christ with imperfections, because Paul's not perfect, but as Paul is seeking to imitate Christ and is following in his footsteps, they can follow after Paul who they can see. You know, it would be like, um, now we'll wait for this for a second. It'd be like going to school, you're a kindergartner again, and you're doing show and tell. You remember show and tell? You know, somebody brings in their favorite book about giraffes, and they're like, aren't giraffes awesome? You know, look at, how, look at how God created them so that when they bend their head down, you know, blood doesn't rush into their head and kill them, but they've got this, like, sponge thing that... They're like, whoa, you're really smart for a kindergartner. Um, but, you know, and somebody brings in their gerbil, and they're like, wow, you know, look at this gerbil. And then I come in, and I say, I got this little lion for, for my birthday this year, and it's awesome. You'd love it. It's kind of like orangey and brown. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? This is show and tell. This isn't just tell. Right? That we're lacking something if we're just telling and not showing. But instead, got too many things in my bag. Where did it go? I say, look at this little lion. And Ezra gave this to me for my 30th birthday party. Or for my 30th birthday. Isn't it cute? He said, I want to get daddy a cat. So he got me a lion. And I thought, this year, I'm going to be a lion and not a cat. You know? But you can see it. You know what it looks like because it's right here. It's tangible. It's right in front of you. How does that relate to our lives as parents or as ministers to children? Are you just preaching? Are you practicing? Are you telling them or are you showing them as well? More is caught than taught, right? That's the old phrase. So we need to be discipling not just with our words, but with our lives. What are we doing? What are we not doing? What are they learning with their ears in comparison to their eyes? And what will the consequences be if there's inconsistency? And none of us are perfect. We're all kind of little hypocrites, right? None of us is perfect, so we're going to say things that we don't do perfectly that we're you know, telling others that they should do because this is what God says. We're all works in progress. But what happens when you're preaching to them and teaching them to walk this way, but they're not seeing it in your own life? I think there can be negative consequences to that where people, if they don't have a path to follow after, if you're following Jesus, will veer to another path. I've got a picture for you. Uh, one of my previous youth group students used this example. She said that she used to go hunting with her dad, also, that's awesome, hunting with her dad, 
And when she was little, the snow would be deep, so she would follow in his footsteps so that she didn't get stuck in the snow. So what happens when there's no footsteps to follow after? Instead, there should be a clearly paved path ahead of us to show us which way to go. We'll go one more. This is really what it looks like. We go back to the Jesus, me, and them illustration, too. Jesus has paved this path for us. I'm following after him so that others can follow after me on that same path. Is this what it looks like in our homes, in our lives as we pour into our nieces and nephews, into the kids in student ministry, kids' ministry? Or, go one more, are they seeing different paths in the snow? Sometimes I'm following Jesus, sometimes I'm following this, sometimes I'm following that. And if they're really following your footsteps, they're going to get lost because you're not going on the path of Christ yourself. I'm preaching to myself here. So if you're feeling like, what does, you know, Pastor Stephen, he's, you know, he's reading into my life. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm reminding myself here too because I don't walk the perfect straight path behind Jesus either. But Ezra is looking up to me, and what is he going to learn, not just when I'm preaching here on Sunday mornings, or he gets into youth group with me, or when I'm in devotions with him, but what does he see in my life with how I treat my wife, with how I talk to others, with how I treat him? We've all got room to grow. So live a life worthy of imitation, and disciple them intentionally. Disciple them intentionally. You know, for the past two weeks, Ryan has very helpfully taken us through a wellness plan for you. And I really highly recommend that you do this. Uh, we're in small groups for the next couple of weeks, going to go deeper into this because we want every person in this church to have a plan moving forward. We know that the plans of man's heart are many, but his steps are the Lord's, right? So we, we want to have a plan. We want to set goals and expectations and inform new habits to move in a path forward, right? So if we're doing this for ourselves, what's our wellness plan for our kids? What's our plan to disciple them intentionally this year? Again, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, a kids or a student ministry worker, it's an incredible privilege God has given us. He's called us to raise up his children in the faith. Even Ezra, more than being Nikki and my child, is God's child. We've been given this responsibility. Are we being faithful stewards of the responsibility God has graciously given us? Discipleship starts in the home. So we need a plan for how we're going to intentionally disciple them because prayer and planning precedes progress. Prayer and planning precedes progress. If you're not praying for your kids, if you don't have a plan of how to bring them forward in their steps, in their walk with Jesus, we shouldn't expect that they're going to progress. So parents, I want to talk to you specifically you're in the trenches with your kids. This is not an easy world to raise children in right now. Our nation is 
not going in the best direction right now, so there's a lot of knots that need to be untangled, even just from what they're learning in school, let alone from their peers in the media. So you're in the trenches with them, and I want to commend you. What I hope you don't take from this message is that I'm coming with, you know, a rod, and I'm like, do better, do... No, 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 no. I want to remind us of this responsibility we have and encourage you to continue in further excellence. And maybe some of you say, I have not been excellent. I haven't been doing this well. well. It's never too late to start. Nobody has all the answers. Nobody has this all figured out. Nobody's doing perfect. So what I want us to do is wherever we're at in this process, to get a plan, to pray, and to move forward. You're in the trenches. So bruise up your knees praying for your kids. That's an awesome place to start. Get on the floor and pray for them. Keep sowing seeds even when you're not seeing any growth. Kids' ministry, raising up children, can often be a ministry of sowing seeds and watering seeds, and maybe you don't see the, the growth that you want to immediately. But this is the most formative time of their whole life. In that stage of them being impressionable, Formable. How are we pouring into them? Again, you don't have to have this all figured out, and you're not alone. This is why God gives us the body of Christ. We have a community of experienced disciplers and disciples who have poured their lives into their children, into others' children in different ministries, and who have been poured into. So, we want to reap the harvest of, of knowledge in our church to help one another. Because if you're like me, you don't have raising your children and discipling your children figured out. Like, I'm nowhere close to it. Ezra's two and a half, and I'm like, some days I'm like, what the heck am I doing? You know, it's just, it's just how it is. We don't have it all figured out. But I think we have more answers than just one of us, right? So uh, in your bulletins, you've got a card here. Did you see this? This is for everybody. And I want to encourage everybody to, whether it's while I'm speaking or in the moments following, fill this out. What are the most impactful ways you have discipled children or have been discipled by your parents? A couple ideas here. In discipling others, what are your strengths? What are areas you would like to grow in? We're in this with you, and we want to help you in whatever way we can. So Sarah and I have been praying and talking, and on March 3rd, Friday night, we're doing a parent's dinner that the topic of the message we're going to be sharing or teaching on is discipling your children. So what we're going to do is, after you fill these out, and if you look in the back over by the exit sign, right underneath it, there's a box to turn these in and this isn't just like, turn it in and we're not going to do anything with it. We're going to create a resource for you that we're going to give out at this Parenting Your Children dinner. That will be the wisdom of parents and those who have been discipled at Anchor so we can have some ideas ourselves to how to do this better. So please take the time to fill this out. I think this is going to be helpful for you. I know it's going to be helpful for me. I need you guys in this. So, we've got that event coming up in about a month and a half. That'll be exciting. 
Another thing is immerse them in the church community. Immerse them in the church community. This is an incredible way to bring them to Jesus. You know, we're competing with time that is being poured into them at school and online and with friends of theirs who maybe don't know Jesus. And we know that Paul says bad company corrupts good morals. So how do we come together as a village of believers who are doing life together to pour into our kids to compete with that discrepancy of time that they're being poured into by the world and by Christ through us? Got to have these kids in nursery, in Awana, kids ministry, student ministry, because we have passionate leaders, followers of Christ, who are here to pour into your kids. Do we have any student men and kids men leaders in here, volunteers? Can we have you all stand up? That, mean, that means now. Anybody who's in here who volunteers and pours into kids at this church? Let's give these people a round of applause. This is part of the team that we have to pour into your kids here. We're not meant to do this alone. This is a community. And so bringing our kids to these things is so helpful. Nikki and I have been so blessed, particularly by Karen Matos recently, because she loves to teach the Bible in nursery. So Ezra has been loving going through the book of Kings with her and is talking about David and Saul and all of these people because at two and a half, he's learning the Bible in nursery. That's huge. Amen. That's huge. But this is what happens when we immerse our children into the community of faith. Christ pours into them through his people. Our third point is to become like a child. Become like a child. And you say, I get this one nailed down. I'm 32, but my maturity level is 12. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Let's go back to what Jesus says here, because now we get the opportunity to learn from the children in the passage. Verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what do we need to do? This is talking to everybody. In the Greek, the phrase for shall not enter it has two negative words. U me eseote. Now, that's not like English where a double negative is a positive. That's adding emphasis, force. If you do not become like a child, you absolutely will not by any means enter it. So Jesus is warning us. You can hear the urgency in his voice. He says, don't miss this. Because disciples, with the way that you're looking at the children, I need to make sure you understand that my expectation is not that they become more like you, but that you become more like them. 
You have a lot to learn from them, Peter, James, John, Stephen. This is the only way. So do we have a childlike trust, dependence, love for the Lord that could be characterized as childlike? What do we need to do? We need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. In the surrounding context of this passage, this is a consistent theme. Jesus, immediately after saying this about the children, the rich young ruler comes on in. And he says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? It's like right on cue. Okay, let's see. Receive the kingdom like a child based fully on trust and not on merit versus what do I have to do? That's an illustration in a sermon in and of itself. Um, how about later on when the disciples, James and John, say, Lord, seat us at your right and left hand. We want to be like you, and we want to be your number one and number two. And Jesus says, okay, you want to be the greatest of all? Become the servant of all. And that includes children. Consider everyone else is more important than you. Are you ready for that, James and John? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. People are expecting that he's going to be enthroned. The kingdom of God is going to come onto earth. And Bartimaeus, the blind beggar in Jericho, is calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people, again, rebuke him and say, silence. He doesn't have time for you. What does Jesus do? He stops because the greatest sees the least. We see this consistent theme of needing to humble ourselves, needing to become like the least of these in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to humble ourselves. I think an awesome illustration of this is the king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Small groups have been studying through that, so that's on my mind. The king of Nineveh hears that Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days, and what does he do? First and foremost, he believes the word of God. He says, what Jonah is telling me, I'm not just taking as a possibility. I'm not just taking as a higher authority in my life, but maybe there's other things that are important too. He says, no, I believe that this is going to happen, so I need to respond. I need to act now. Two, he steps off of his throne. He says, I'm not in control any longer. My authority is not what matters. I'm going to let the Lord of the universe be the king now. Have we stepped off the throne of our heart and let Jesus take his seat that he is deserving of? So he steps off his throne and he takes off his royal robes, which what do those do more than anything? Set him apart from the rest of the people in the kingdom. And he takes them off because he is no different than the rest of them. It's not a, you all need to repent, but I'm the king, I'm fine. He says, I'm no different. I'm a human like you, and I need to humble myself too. And he mourns. He recognizes his guilt, which is as well in the Beatitudes, what Jesus says those who are poor in spirit do is they mourn, and they will be comforted because there is forgiveness and salvation in Jesus for those who believe his word become like a child, humble themselves, and receive that salvation. So are we properly perceiving who we are in our need for God? 
Are we humble enough to admit that? Or is pride still controlling our hearts that we keep ourselves at an arm distance because really we're not that reliant upon him? So we have to humble ourselves. The next thing is we need to trust in and depend on God like a child. We need to trust in him. We need to depend on him rather than being self-sufficient. And it's easy to think about this, at least for me, in regard to salvation. You say, well, of course, I know I can't work my way to heaven, and I need God's grace. Check. Got that, right? Okay, how about day to day? How about for your finances? How about for decisions and direction in your life? How about for interactions moment by moment with your wife or your child or your friend or your boss? Are you relying on yourself? Are you self-sufficient? Or are you looking to him for guidance throughout all of this? What does it look like to trust like a child? I know for me, I think of Ezra, who often will walk down our stairs, which are kind of steep, going up to our second floor, and he'll just go, Dad, and just, just literally fall into my arms because he knows I'm going to catch him. But sometimes he does it a little bit sooner than I'm expecting, and he got to kind of like run up the stairs to get him so he doesn't hurt himself, right? But do we have that sort of childlike trust that says, my dad's got me? I can rely on him. I can depend on him. I have confidence that my dad, my heavenly father, can do anything. I have trust that my dad is worthy of my wholehearted trust. I can rely upon him because my dad will take care of me. I believe in him because what he tells me is always true. Does my trust in God look like that? I think a helpful way to look at this is to ask ourselves, do I have the DNA of a child? Not deoxyribonucleic acid, but instead, am I dependent upon him? Am I near to him? And do I have the adoration for him that a child would? We talked about trust and dependence. How about nearness? I know Ezra, when I'm home or Nikki's home, is like at our leg. He doesn't want to be separated from us. As soon as he sees us pick him up from the nursery, he wants to be near us. Do you want to be near to God like that? Do you adore him like a child does? Our son loves many people. He's just a lover. But ultimately, he's a, he, he has a special sort of love for his mom and me because he's ours. Do we have that sort of love and affection for our heavenly father as well? You know, if Ezra, I had even talked about trying to do this as a living example with Nikki earlier, said if we brought Ezra up here on stage and I held him during this point, it'd be super cute, but eventually Nikki'd have to take him away and he'd go out kicking and screaming. Why? Because he wants to be near his dad. He loves me. And then I thought, are we like that with the Lord? When the world tries to drag us away and take us away, we're, we're kicking and screaming, wanting to be near to the Lord? Or is it more so... We're with the world, and the Lord's trying to draw us away from sin and the world and temptation, and we're kicking and screaming, fighting against him because we'd rather be near the world. So we need to trust and depend on God like a child. And we need to enter God's kingdom. Again, we heard the urgency of Jesus' voice for this. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot 
see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Have we humbled ourselves and recognized our need for God? Have we placed our trust in what only he can do so that our hearts are born again? Born of God. This only comes by receiving him, and nobody can enter into the kingdom unless they have been born again, unless they have humbled themselves and become like a child and placed their trust in him like a child does his dad or his mom. Jesus says in the next passage, verses 23 through 26, that this is why it's so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. So we're going to use the rich young ruler as our last example as we close this sermon out. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking what he can do to enter in. Jesus, after some other words with him, tells him, because he looks at him and loves him, and he says, you lack one thing. Give away your possessions to the poor. Store up treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And he goes away sad, weeping, mourning, because he had a lot. He had a lot in this world. He had a lot of possessions. And he was unwilling to relinquish those in order to receive the greater blessing. Like, immensely greater, infinitely greater blessing of what the Lord had for him, which was himself. But it's more than just a greed or an unwillingness to, to just become like the poor. To struggle. It's a matter of trust. He's been able to rely upon himself his entire life. He's got it made. He's got wealth. He's got status. He's great in the world's eyes. And if he gives it all away to the poor, he has to rely upon God in a way different way. He's willing to obey God, but when it comes to trust and reliance, he can't do it. Because he has learned to be functionally self-sufficient. He's deceived. He does not perceive his need for God in the way that he ought to. So, to those of us who have not placed that kind of faith in Christ, I want to give an opportunity this morning to respond to that and to run into the arms of Jesus and receive the greatest blessing that this world has to offer us, which is him, which is salvation, which is the abundant life, eternal life now. It's not going to take away all your pain. It's not going to take away all your suffering, but Jesus is better than anything you can ever have in this world. So I want us to run into his arms. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we want to humble ourselves and admit our need for you, for ourselves, and to have any impact on others. Lord, we want to love your children like you do. Give us your heart. Give us your eyes to see them like you do so that we might love them like you do, Lord. But we can't do that on our own. So give us wisdom. Give us direction. 
Fill us with your spirit that we might love on and pour into our children, our nieces and nephews, our grandchildren, students in this church. Maybe there's somebody here who desires to take a step and join Sarah's team or or student ministry team and, and pour into children in a different way. Take that leap. Go and do it. Have the heart of Christ and and act on it. And maybe there's somebody here as well who has walked in self-sufficiency their whole life. Who with their mouth declares, I believe in you, Jesus, you're my Lord, and yet their life shows that to be different. Maybe they've not understood the sort of trust they truly need to have in Jesus, not just for their salvation, but every moment of the day, placing trust and reliance upon him rather than themselves. To anybody who maybe feels like that that's them, I want to give you just a moment to yourself to share that with the Lord and respond by placing your faith in him, repenting, turning from sin, and receiving the kingdom of God and salvation in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We want to be more like you. Help us to do that. For your glory, in Jesus' name.